Turn to Romans 4 again. Tonight I decided to plug on in Romans 4. We'll be dealing with the dynamic state of love. I almost forgot that this year we we dubbed the year of another year of being in love. So oddly enough that theme has come around again. And I'm not going to mention Patty's special day tomorrow. I'm trying to lay off that a little bit. So especially the look that Ralph gave me when I said his birthday, January 10th, I think it was. Wait, <laughs> I remember right. So, yeah. Is it really the 10th? Come on. You, nobody's going to remember it. Is it January? Who will? Oh, yeah. The Empress will. I just don't want to. I just want to talk to people tonight. I don't want to teach. <laughs> I've been doing this for 40 years. I'm. Uh, I want to talk to people. Romans chapter 4, verse 4, a couple moments just to enter into his courts, enter into his gates with thanksgiving, thanking God for Tom Bonnet's birthday coming up soon. Very soon. <laughs> he thought he slid by We thank you, Father, that we do have the extraordinary joy and happiness of knowing that we have not made ourselves, but you have made us. You called us into existence out of nothing, and you raised us from being dead in sins, saved us by grace. And as if that were not enough, you have treasured upon us a constellation of insights by your grace and by your mercy so that even as you have Abraham look to the skies and count the stars if he's able, we would look at the constellation of insights you've granted this assembly and we cannot count them. And even if we could, we could not place a value on them because they all Speak, as do all the stars in the heavens, of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that tonight's message will move us deeper into a dynamic state of love, which is a divinely approved livingness for us at this time of the dying phase of an evil age. And we're grateful even for that, Father that the evil age from which you are delivering us is coming to an end, that the night is far spent, that the day, the dawn is at hand, the parousia of Jesus Christ, his universal appearance. We anticipate that, Father, with great and urgent intensity. And we thank you for this opportunity, which we Simply ask for grace to make the most of it, that we may understand the things that come forth from the Spirit who addresses us tonight. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. 
Romans chapter 4 and verse 4, we left off last night there, and we're dealing in general with the theme of God's approved or God-approved livingness. Really, it's kind of the other leg of the revelation of the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. Given all that, how do we live then? How do we live in a state or a dynamic state in which God approves of our livingness, our being, our doing, our knowing, our thinking, our deliberating, our deciding, our acting. And we have reached Romans 4.4. 4. I'll go over it very briefly and move on into this passage. In one sense, Paul is doing what Isaiah proclaimed in Isaiah 51. It just comes to mind right now where God says to look from the look to the quarry from whence you were dug and to look to Abraham I called him alone and greatly increased him and that's what we're doing we're looking to Abraham with a view to looking past him to the first Adam and past the first Adam to the final Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 4.4, 4, Now to the one who works, his pay is not calculated according to the principle of grace, but of obligation. Now we picked that strand up last night and commented in this way. God would be obligated to approve of a livingness consisting of works. But God will not be obligated. He is free. And he freely justifies all who sinned in Adam, all who sinned and were complicit with that apocalyptic power of sin based on his justification of Jesus, as we've learned in Romans 3.23 to 26, or our learning. In Romans 4, 5, he then goes on to say, but to the one who is not working, but trusting in the one who justifies the ungodly. Please notice here that there is a very important distinction. This is not about trusting God to be justified, but trusting the God who justifies the ungodly without Contingency without a subjective human response just because it's God's freedom in love to do so. We don't really ever understand freedom until we understand God's freedom, the principle of which is his love. So, but to the one who is not working, but trusting in the one who justifies the ungodly, his faithful trust is considered by God as rectitude. Now, I say rectitude because it's distinct from that word righteousness, which is a general word. Righteousness, as we know, God's righteousness is what he has done rightly in delivering his son, Jesus Christ, from enemies, our enemies and his sin, death, principalities and powers and principalities and powers are real beings. We don't know that much about them in our culture, but recent studies 
of tribes in the rainforest have studied that many of the shamans were filled with all kinds of spirits. They were spirits of the jaguar, spirits of the deer, spirit of the monkey, spirit of the snake. And this one story by a shaman was that he came to a place where he wanted to get rid of those spirits and they wouldn't leave. He said, they made a house in my chest, a shabano or a house in my chest. And he found out in a kind of Pauline conversion that there is only one spirit, the creator spirit, he called it, who could deliver him from those and make those spirits go away from him. At first, they were very intriguing to him as a boy, and then he became a shaman through it, and then he realized that these spirits were only happy when he and his tribe were killing other people from other tribes. And he began to realize, I don't want these spirits anymore, but there is no spirit. I'm in the spirit world that can deliver me from them until someone told him about Jesus Christ and used a name that they understood. And that man was dramatically converted and saw the creator spirit of Jesus Christ as being the only way that he could be delivered. And so principalities and powers enter into the picture. Demonic beings enter into the picture. And we'll see this, especially in Galatians, where Paul talks to them as being servants of the elemental spirits, the stoichia, the spirits of this age. And that if they go back to the law, they're doing no different from what they did before. They're serving certain elemental spirits of the age. So that'll be coming up, but we're going to let that go for now. The book is entitled, I don't, re- I don't really think I want to recommend it, because it's called The Spirit of the Rainforest, and it's a true story told by a shaman. But it's extremely graphic and extremely brutally violent and even, well, some sexual stuff that's pretty graphic. But the point is it ends up glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ because it shows us what this culture is like. It takes away that whole idea of, though, there's innocent tribes living somewhere in the world today. They're all innocent. And that's a myth. And, of course, Romans addresses that a little bit. But that just happens to be on the docket for down the road. I'd like to insert a few previews. But to the one who is not working, he says, but trusting in the one who justifies the ungodly. Notice what he says. He doesn't say trusting God to be justified. He says trusting the one God who justifies the ungodly. That means he justifies people without any contingency on their part, whether it's works or faith. And so to the one who is not working but trusting In the one who justifies the ungodly, his faithful trust is considered by God as rectitude. Rectitude here is God-approved livingness. This is a God-approved livingness. This is not saying, again, that one has to trust to be justified, but that God approves of a livingness and a life of faithful trust in him as the one who justifies the ungodly. This is a God-approved livingness. 
livingness that is works of any kind with the expectation of payment by God is not approved by God. It is not a, and I say livingness because I mean something that takes in our being, our doing, our knowing, our thinking, our reflection, our deliberation, our deciding, our acting. All those things make up our livingness. The faith that God generates or the faith that God evokes or elicits or kindles at the hearing of the gospel is a faith by which we live. We live by this. We think by this. We think in terms of this. We judge or make judgments in terms of this faith. And when we live by this faith, we're living by a faith that works by love. And this faith that works by love is the approval of God, gains the approval of God. Livingness that is works of any kind with the expectation of payments by God or putting God under obligation to pay a reward based on works is not a livingness that God approves of. Paul is still in a dialectic of contradictories with this teacher who says, it does. He starts off in Romans 4.1. The teacher does by saying, look, you're talking about the law, the Torah, the prophets. Let's go there and, and ask about Abraham. What do you think Abraham, our forefather, our father as Jews, not the forefather of everybody, but our forefather, what do you think he's obtained? Since he was justified by works, what do you think he's obtained? And Paul said, well, that's not how God sees it. The teacher says, since he's justified by works, doesn't he have the right to boast? So going back to Romans 3.27, where is boasting then? Paul says is excluded. The teacher says, I beg to differ. Paul, I want to tell you about Abraham. He was justified by works. Sounds a little bit like James here, although a misinterpretation of James. If he's been justified by works, he's got something to boast about, meaning he's in a livingness that God approves called works. Paul says, no, that's not how God sees it. What does the scripture say in Romans 4, 3? And we went through that. Paul is not a covenant theologian, as people say he is. He's a scriptural theologian. He's always saying kathos gegraptai at least 15 times in Romans, as the scripture says, as the scripture says, as the scripture says. Paul isn't a dispensationalist, nor is he a covenant theologian. He's a scriptural theologian as we ought all aspire to be. All of humanity receives the reward calculated on the basis of grace. Why? Because Jesus alone received the reward of life calculated on the basis of his faithfulness. That comes up again in Romans 4.16. This is again... This is something I've been meditating on for a couple of years, so I'm, I'm trying to bring it piecemeal, and it seems like we're going the long way around, but I think you're going to see it. From It'll go from obscurity to clarity by the time, perhaps by the time we're done with Romans 4, certainly by the time we're done with Romans. Now Paul appeals to David in Romans 4, 6 through 8. Now remember, this is teaching in Romans 4, 4 and 5, that the reward of life 
was given to one Jesus Christ on the basis of his faithfulness, his one righteous deed, his obedience to the extent of death. But everyone else, the whole human race, receives that reward of life. It's kind of an oxymoron. It's kind of a, a strange way of speaking. It's a paradox. Receives a reward on the basis of grace. And again, that's a paradox because you don't think of reward given on the basis of grace. But we have the reward of life based on Christ's faithfulness. And therefore, for us, it's grace. Remember Peter's haunting words in Acts 15, 11, when he said, we believe that we are saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus. Speaking to Jews, even as they, the Gentiles, are. So you can write all these encyclicals you want to and papal edicts or from the Church of Jerusalem and say, let's make them abstain from this and abstain from that if you want, but I don't think we ought to lay any heavy burden on them. They're saved by grace like we are. Now Paul appeals to David and to the Psalms again, specifically here Psalm 32, 1-2, or the Septuagint 31, 1-2. Romans 4, in the same way David describes the blessedness that means blissfulness. It means that in the midst of our suffering in this life, and there's plenty of it, in the midst of our grief and loss, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of adversities, there's a certain inner blissfulness when we come to know that God considers us to have rectitude apart from works. He says, in the same way David describes the blessedness or the blissfulness of the man, and he only says man here, although obviously you can say man or woman. David's speaking of himself here. The man whom God considers to have rectitude, that is, whom God approves, apart from works. Then in verse 7, how blessed or blissful, happiness, felicitous, are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered over. There's an oblique reference here to the cover of the mercy seat in Romans 3.25 that Christ became. How blessed, he says in verse 8, is the man whose sin the Lord in no way takes into account. Those whose lawless deeds are forgiven are the consciously reconciled recipients of God's uncontingent mercy, mercy that requires nothing from us. I'll say that again. Those whose lawless deeds are forgiven are the consciously re reconciled recipients of God's uncontingent mercy. God has already reconciled the world to himself in Christ. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The difference between you and the world, per se, is that you're conscious of this reconciliation. You are aware of it. God has awakened you to it. You've awakened, and Christ has shined on you in Ephesians 5.14. Those who have received and consciously received God's uncontingent mercy are the Israel of God coming around full circle to an insight that God gave us, one of the brightest of the stars in the constellation of insights 
that he's granted to Tetelestai Phalanx, the Israel of God. For of Israel, the scripture says, in the day when I forgive their sins, that being the day of the initiation of the new covenant, when God takes away the ungodliness of Jacob, Ezekiel put it this way, I will take away their stony hearts from out of their flesh and put with them in them a heart of flesh. Paul refers to this in 2 Corinthians 3, the living epistles. You're a living epistle, Paul said, written not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God and not in stone tablets, which is a mixed metaphor to the tablets of the Decalogue that God wrote upon and also reference to the stony heart that God removes from our hearts. I haven't, he said, the spirit has written an epistle on your hearts, not on tables of stone, but on tables of human flesh. Again, that's just a suggestion where Romans takes us to second Corinthians, the new covenant. In the day when I forgive their sins is the day of the initiation of the new covenant. When God takes away the ungodliness of Jacob in Romans eleven twenty seven, He will forgive their wrongdoing, says the scripture, and never again remember their sin. Now there he means he will never remember again their complicity with sin as an apocalyptic power. Sin is an apocalyptic power. We were complicit with it. We chose to act under its enslavement, and we sinned. God chooses not to remember our complicity with sin because Christ became sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him or the rectitude that God approves in him in participation with him. Now Paul asks the crucial question in Romans 4, 9. We'll get right down to the heart of the matter here. Is this blessing upon the circumcision only? Or is it also on the uncircumcision? Now the word uncircumcision simply means the foreskin. For it, the scripture says, he considered Abraham's trustful faith to be rectitude. He considered Abraham's trustful faith. Really, God is approving of his own act in Abraham because the promise that God made to Abraham that in his seed all the nations would be blessed, then I have made you a father of many nations. In Genesis 17.5 and then 18.18, Abraham had faith evoked by the promise. And he lived by that faithful trust for the rest of his days. He lived in that faithful trust. Yes, he deviated from time to time as any of us would. But he becomes an example of a remarkable resilience of fidelity because he was already participating in the fidelity of Messiah. 
So he says, this blessing that David speaks about, the blessedness of the man whom God considers to have rectitude apart from works. In other words, there is a life and a livingness that God approves heartily of that has nothing to do with the works of the law or has nothing to do with any kind of meritorious works where we do something and expect God to be obligated to pay us. A lot of religions right there. A lot of the so-called Christian religion is right there, too. It's not approved by God. It says he considered Abraham's trustful faith to be rectitude or God-approved livingness. So, again, that does not say he considered Abraham's circumcision or, on the other hand, his absence of a foreskin to be rectitude. He considered Abraham's circumcision or his absence of a foreskin to be rectitude. God did not say that at all. Paul's making the absurdity that teacher's account absurd. It does not say God considered circumcised Abraham's faithful trust to be rectitude or an approved kind of livingness. It simply says, God considered Abraham's faithful trust to be rectitude or GAL, God-approved livingness. That's the point in Romans. It's not a battle here between justification by personal faith versus justification by the works of the law. That's not what it is, what's in there. What he's talking about is a justification by total grace of the ungodly based on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And those who believe, you see, do you believe that? Do you believe that God justifies the ungodly? Then you're beginning to operate in a faith that God approves of. You're actually in a kind of thinking, a kind of perception, and a kind of understanding, because through faith we understand, in Hebrews 11.3, And without faith, it's impossible to please God or gain his approval in Romans, rather, Hebrews 11, 6. And anything apart from faith is sin in Romans 14, 23. So you start to get the point that God approves very heartily of faith in the universally saving significance of his son. It changes your whole perception. It changes your perception of humanity. Now that I know, Paul says that one died for all and all died. Now the love of Christ controls me, not sin. And I've determined this. If one died for all, then all died. Therefore, I don't see people as I used to see them. So the blessing of Abraham in Christ Jesus comes to the Gentiles just like it comes to the Jews because Christ was made the curse of the law on the cross. I'm crossing over here to Galatians 3.13 to 14. Some commentators think that that's an illegitimate thing to do. It's like Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon. You can't do that. Well, I'm doing it. We're crossing over to Galatians from time to time. And the book of Acts is coming up, too, in future teachings. Romans 4.10, Paul goes on to say, But when, 
Now he asks the question, when? When was this approving consideration made? When did God say, I approve or I consider your faithful trust to be approved livingness, rectitude? Not salvation, but rectitude, an approved way of living. When was this approving consideration made by God, this approving acknowledgement? Paul says, when Abraham was in a state of circumcision or in a state of uncircumcision, that is, while he still had his foreskin. The absurdity of this actually becomes humorous a little bit here. Paul then says, okay, I gave you the cue, the question. When was this approving consideration made? When did God approve of Abraham's livingness and call it rectitude? When Abraham was in a state of circumcision or in a state of uncircumcision, the answer, A, he has a Q and an A right here in the same thing. The answer is not when he was in a state of circumcision, but when he was in a state of uncircumcision, or simply when he still had a foreskin. There's nothing dynamic about being circumcised after the act of circumcision or uncircumcised. That became a very important issue in Poland and Germany and Italy and many other places in the 1930s to the Nazis. Circumcision was a big deal to them. So men had to expose themselves, and if they were circumcised, they were considered Jews. They were sent off to the camps. In God's view, the state to be in is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision but a dynamic state of love. After all, what makes Israel Israel? Listen up, Israel. You will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. That makes you Israel in praxis. That is a description of God-approved livingness by Israel. He doesn't say, listen, Israel, your males shall be circumcised and your females and males shall follow certain calendar laws and feasts and certain kosher dietary laws, and that will make you Israel. Israel in praxis, in deed and in truth, are the lovers of God. But thank God, the only way to be a lover of God is through the gift of God's own love which he pours out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Romans 5.5. 5. Our hope is not ashamed, Paul says, which means the hope that we have isn't just a deferred consolation. It's not God saying, hey, down the road, we don't know when, I can't tell you when, I know when, but I'm not going to tell you when. Jesus is coming back and he's going to deliver the whole of the universe in all of its times. But until then, hang tough. Hope is not a deferred consolation. That's what Romans 5, 5 says. Our hope is not disappointed, ashamed, meaning. It's not a deferred or put off consolation because in the meantime, while we're waiting, the love of God is being poured out into our hearts to make a meaningful livingness in this dying phase of the evil age. 
life is extraordinarily meaningful. So what it's actually saying is don't just hope for the age to come where Christ comes. Live now because now you have an opportunity in the midst of an evil age to live and glorify God having this treasure in earthen vessels, which is an opportunity you will not have following the parousia. That makes, in one sense, this little life that we're in right now more important than the one to follow forever and ever in the sense that only now do we have the unique opportunity of living mortal, mortal lives in mortal bodies, having this treasure in earthen vessels pressed on every side, adversities everywhere, adversities on the inside and the outside, Anxieties that we have to deal with in life that are not sinful anxieties, but they're from the pressures of life. We're not going to get that opportunity after death. We're not going to get that opportunity after the parousia. Now. Live now. And there's a way to live now, and it's through implicit, faithful trust in God It works by love. It works by love on the back end because love motivates it. And it works by love on the front end because faith works out into love. It's a faith that works by love. It's initiated by love and it works along with love. It's a dynamic state of love. God's not interested in circumcision or uncircumcision as states of being. He's interested in the dynamic state of love. And this is the rule. The most important thing that you can understand about the Christian life, the life that God approves, is by connecting Galatians 5, 6 with Galatians 6, 16. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything at all as a status quo, but a faith that works by love. Galatians 5, 6. And then he says again in Galatians 6.15, circumcision and uncircumcision as states or conditions don't mean anything. What is really something is a new creation. And then he says, peace and mercy be upon all those who walk according to this rule. That is, they live in the dynamic state of a faith working by love, a faith that God gifts us with, a love that's the production of the Holy Spirit in us. We walk according to the rule of a faith that works by love, and Paul says those who do that are, in other words, the Israel of God. And what does Ephesians 5, 1 to 2 say? Walk in love. Be imitators of God. Forgive one another even as God has forgiven you for Christ's sake. Today people are motivated to attack their attackers from the past, whether it's a serious offense or an offense that's now been called an offense because it hurts someone's feelings. They are called upon to turn and attack. They have no idea of the Christian message of forgive one another. If anyone has an offense against another person, let the one offended forgive them because the forgiver is actually relieved 
from what was done to them by forgiving, not by turning and attacking the one who hurt or harmed them in the past. It's a strange thing, but forgiveness is the power that brings in the kingdom of God. Let your kingdom come. Forgive us our debts and transgressions as we forgive those who have transgressed against us. How does the kingdom come? Through forgiveness. Imagine somebody saying, I forgave this person who hurt me and abused me in the past. And what if somebody else said, me too? And what if that became a trend? What if me too became a trend of forgiveness? Now you say, that's, you can say that lightheartedly. No, no, I'm not saying that lightheartedly. I know it's not an easy thing to forgive. And it's not a light thing to forgive. And you can't just say forgive and forget because things hurt and they hurt for a long, long time. But forgiving is the way that the forgiver is released from that pain. So, God is pleased. Now, here's the absurdity of it. God doesn't look on a man and say, well, he has a foreskin. He can't be in a state of rectitude. I can't approve of him. He has a foreskin. Nor, nor does God, because that's how it boils down to that. It, it, neither does God say, this guy doesn't have a foreskin, so I approve of his livingness. God is pleased with faith. More specifically, with a faith that works by love. Have you considered my servant Job? God would say, have you considered my servant and mention your name? And he would say, they live in a faith that works by love. And you almost don't want him to say that to the adversary because the adversary will say, oh, yeah? So you can pray, Father, please don't say that about me to the adversary. Let him be busy somewhere else. And he is busy. Even the Arabs know. There's an Arabic saying that calls Satan the busy one. He's very busy and he'd like to get you busy. It's interesting that this shaman from the rainforest said the worst thing. They always let people stay in their homes and put them in a hammock and stuff because they believe stinginess was the worst kind of offense. And the spirits that inhabited him, hateful spirits, told him that if they were stingy, they would burn forever in a fire after they died. Demon spirits told them the doctrine of hell. So they showed hospitality. 
Not because they love people. In fact, one night they had a bunch of people stay in their village and they were hospitable to them because they were supposed to. Then they killed them all in their hammocks the next day. Because he said, these spirits are only happy when we were killing. And he said this, they were truly happy when we were killing children. And I can't get rid of it. And then finally he realized, I can't get rid of these spirits. The gospel got rid of those spirits. The spirit of Jesus Christ got rid of those spirits. Why am I introducing that? I'm doing it very carefully. Because it's an important and a very sober subject. But the point is, they were happy. As Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil. He was a killer from the beginning, a murderer from the beginning, a liar and a murderer. And it was perfectly revealed in this case because he lied about an afterlife of fire forever to offenders. And he liked murder. The spirits liked murder. They, they, and their big thing was they offended you. That village attend, offended you. Get together and attack that village. Rape the women, kill the children, kill the men, kill, kill. And the spirits were very happy when they were doing that. I'm only saying that to say that the spirit of the evil one is a liar. And he has developed even in places that have never heard anything about Plato or Christ, on the other hand, he has taught them about a doctrine of eternal fire after death that you can never get out of. Interesting. Very interesting. Now, God approves of his own act and action in people because he evokes faith. The promise was what evoked the faith of Abraham. And it evoked a faithfulness that the Holy Spirit sustained in him. So his whole moving and living and thinking and determining and deciding and deliberating and choosing where to live and where to go was based on faith. And God, was a, God approved of that. Nothing to do with works. Nothing to do with the works of the law. So God approves of his own act and action in people. Paul put it this way in Philippians 2.13. It is God in you willing and doing that which he himself approves or to his own good pleasure. He's talking about a livingness that's approved. And so when he says work out your own salvation in 2.12 of Philippians, he's saying engineer your own deliverance during the course of of this dying phase of the present evil age by living by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. Walking by faith and not by sight is a saving kind of livingness. So we let God will and do in us But we don't just let go and let God. We let God will and do in us, and then we will and do what God wills and does in us. When Jesus gave the summary directive, he said, I have a new commandment for you. That means a new summary directive. And it's that you will love one another as I have loved you. 
He gave it as a new commandment. He, he built it that way. He said, I have a new commandment. It's a new summary directive, a directive that sums up my entire desired will for you, my entire directive of your livingness. Love one another as I have loved you. He gave it as a new commandment. And that's important. He called it new because it's the summing up of all that he requires of his disciples as part of a new creation. Love one another is a new commandment for those who are the new creation or those who are the Israel of God. He does not say love one another. That's the old commandment. He says, love one another as I have loved you. And the only possibility there is if Christ is in us doing the loving. For without me, you can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. John fifteen five. This style of teaching that I'm giving you tonight is not the style of teaching and learning. It's the style of discovery, meaning I'm teaching these things and saying them in such a way that your discovery of their light will come later when the Spirit brings it home to you. He called this commandment new in John 13, 34, because it's the summing up of all that he requires of his disciples as part of a new creation, or it constitutes the kind of livingness that Paul called the newness of life. A newness of life which only arises when we are crucified with Christ and then raised to it, a newness of life. Romans 6, 4. It's also called new, a new commandment I give to you. It's also called new, kainos, because unlike the old commandment to love God and one's neighbor, This commandment is a mimesis or a manifestation of the love of Jesus which can only be fulfilled in the power of the Holy Spirit whom he and the Father send into our hearts crying, Daddy, in Galatians 4, 6. The Spirit who is sent into our hearts by God the Father and God the Son pours out in our hearts the love of God and the love of Christ Jesus so that we love one another as he loves. Obedience to this commandment by the gift of God's and Christ's own love poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit is the dynamic state which God approves. The state or condition of circumcision is a static condition. The state or condition of uncircumcision is a static condition. Love is a dynamic state of living and thinking and doing. And God approves. Because he's approving his own act and action. He's approving what he himself evokes and produces in the one who walks by means of the spirit and not according to the flesh. So... Be in love. Keep yourselves in the love of God, says Jude. 2018 is another year then to be in love. 
as 2019 will be and as 2020 will be. Did you look up Second Chronicles 2020? 2020 vision. Brian Reed did. You did, didn't you? I know you did. Found that out publicly a few weeks, a couple weeks ago. Now, the state or condition of circumcision and the state or condition of uncircumcision are nothing. So, when did God approve of Abraham's kind of livingness, his faithful trusting in the promise of God, when he was in a state of uncircumcision? God still approved of him, though, when he acted in faith to offer his son Isaac because he believed that Isaac would be resurrected. He had a resurrection kind of faith before the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God approved of that, too, after his circumcision. So what Paul's saying to all these saints that are fighting about circumcision or a lack of circumcision in Rome is, God approves of your faithfulness, whether you're circumcised or not, whether you're a Gentile pagan saint or whether you're a Jewish saint that has been circumcised, doesn't matter to God. He approves of a kind of livingness that trusts in the kind of God that raises the dead, that calls things into existence that never existed before, and that justifies the ungodly. God approves of that. So it's a faith that works by love. So once before you were afraid of your neighbor, go speak to that person and befriend them. Just befriend them. Don't witness to them. Just befriend your neighbor. Well, I can't because they're wearing a funny hat. And they could be a Sikh or they could be a Muslim. And I hate them. Well, your faith believes that God has reconciled the world to himself in Christ. So when God says, go befriend that neighbor, you'll say happily. Why? Because you believe that God reconciles all mankind in Jesus Christ, so you love that person that once you were afraid of or hated. It's a faith that works by love. God gets a kick out of that. Have you considered that, my servant? God was pleased with Job. It says nothing about Job's circumcision or not. So what's really something to God is a dynamic state of being in love or a participation in the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me. Galatians 2.20. The life that I now live in the flesh, this mortal body at the passing age, in the dying phase of an evil age. Galatians 1.4. Romans 13.11-14. I'm coming up to that soon on the other flank. The life that I now live, meaning my livingness, in this flesh, this body, mortal body, I live within the sphere of the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me. In other words, I live within a faith that works by love. Because if God approved of my livingness based on works, then Christ died for no reason. So I don't frustrate the grace of God. I'm complimenting you tonight because I'm teaching in an advanced way. But it's all to get to a real simple point. The livingness, if it ever even can be called that, that comes about by observance of the law 
with the intention of obligating God to pay us or reward us, only provokes others to anger or envy. You'll find out in Romans 4.15, right down the road, that it says the law works or produces wrath. It doesn't mean God's. It means man's wrath. The law provokes anger. It produces anger. Because if you think that God approves of your works, then you go around boasting that God has approved of your works, and the person you're boasting to hasn't done those works, so it makes them mad. And then you get mad because other people aren't fulfilling that same works-oriented livingness. And so in Galatians 5.26, you disobey Paul's mandate, stop provoking one another to anger and envy. The law produces wrath, not God's, man's. Ask Paul. He was really ticked off about people who he thought was ruining the law of Moses, led by a guy named Jesus. Whom he persecuted. Why? Because he was angry. In fact, he wanted to murder them all because the spirit that motivated him until Christ met him was a spirit who delighted in murder. So then, it brings Unhealthy competition, inordinate ambition. But the livingness that's called faith working by love produces peace or harmony among the saints. It's like having friends that don't require anything of you. So Romans 4.11, Paul says, in fact, he received circumcision. This is all my translation. In fact, he received circumcision. Genesis 17, 9, as a seal of approval of the rectitude of his faithful trust. In other words, circumcision wasn't, not only was it the way that God approved of his livingness, but God had him be circumcised to a point back to a time where God approved of his livingness before circumcision. So circumcision was God made it subordinate and said, in fact, he received circumcision as a seal of, of the rectitude of his faithful trust in the state of uncircumcision. So his circumcision was deliberately to point back to the state of uncircumcision where God approved of his livingness, which was simple faith, faithful trust in God, which Abraham would didn't know it like we know it, was a mimesis of the faithfulness of the Son of God. Wherever faith is found, Jesus Christ is the author and perfecter of it. Whenever it's found. So, in order, he says, or we could read it this way. In fact, he received circumcision as a seal of approval of the rectitude of his faithful trust in the state of uncircumcision or when he had a foreskin. In order to be the father of all uncircumcised whose faithful trust is also recognized as Rectitude or God-approved livingness. Wherever you are, God approves of a livingness that trusts implicitly in the God who justifies without condition the ungodly. 
Until then, you can't even have. So someone will say, well, I don't believe God justifies the ungodly. Then what kind of livingness are you living? If you're not living by the faith in the God who justifies the ungodly through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, your faith is vain. You don't have the kind of faith that God approves as a livingness that he's prescribed for this clashing of the ages, this clashing of the eons. We live in the dying phase of an evil age. It's almost done. In fact, the only thing left for the dying age is a death rattle. So far from circumcision being that which God approves as rectitude, or GAL, God approved livingness, Abraham's circumcision was simply a seal of God's approval. So what God was saying was, Abraham, I prove, I approve of the faith that my promise initiated and evoked in you, and that you're living by that faithfulness. I approve of that. So get circumcised, which is my way of saying I approved of that faithfulness before you were circumcised and without circumcision. Paul is really turning that whole argument upside down on that teacher that's opposing his gospel. Because Paul is defending the gospel against a charge. Paul's gospel doesn't bring you into a state of approval by God. It says, go out and do evil that good may come. Paul's defending that charge. And he's saying that quite the opposite. If you attempt to be justified by the works of the law, you're going to initiate anger in people, envy in people. There'll be comparisons and inordinate ambitions that create factions and group biases. And you'll compare each other by each other and measure each other by each other's measurement. And guess what happens? That's not wise. Second Corinthians 10, 12 to 13. So, No longer then can those, Paul's working toward this the whole time. No longer, given this truth, can those who are circumcised exclude from fellowship those who are uncircumcised. No longer can Jewish Christians exclude Gentile saints on the basis of their condition of uncircumcision or on the basis of the laws called kosher food laws that they follow because Paul will say later, The kingdom of God doesn't have anything to do with kosher laws, with eating and drinking. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's that blissfulness in the Holy Spirit that goes with righteousness, which is love. Rectitude, which is love, the dynamic state of love. The kingdom of God is a dynamic state of love. It isn't a state of following kosher laws, calendars, Days of the month and days of the year and observing feasts, like he says to you Galatians, that you used to do when you were Druid dudes. When you were the Druids and when you followed after these spirits and when you had shamans and witch doctors and when you did all that stuff in idolatry, you served the Stoichia, the elemental spirits of the earth and the wind and the fire and the animals, the spirits, the animus of the, the creation. You're doing the same thing if you go back to the law because it's a creaturely obedience that demands a creator's obligation to you. So in closing, the central point, 
I have to hit this before I close, and I will right now. He then says in verse 12, and I want to say this because this is the point I want to close with, and I will close with it. In Romans 4.12, and he said, and at the same time, the father of the circumcised. He's also the father of the circumcised. And by that, he says, I don't mean merely circumcised, but those who also walk in the footsteps of the faithfulness of our father Abraham while still uncircumcised. In other words, if you're the circumcised males, saints, believers in Christ in Rome, Abraham is also your father, but he's not your father because you're circumcised. He's your father because you, like him, have an implicit faithful trust in God's promise, which is what Abraham had before he was circumcised. Again, circumcision, uncircumcision, nothing. So here's the central point of Romans 4, just to give it away before we go all the way through to 25. Read it sometime all the way through 25. You'll see some pretty astonishing conclusions, but we're working toward it. Abraham's faithful trust evoked, ignited, or kindled and sustained by God's promise, which then motivated or moved his entire livingness, his total way of being, his way of doing, his way of thinking, reflecting, judging, deliberating, determining, deciding, choosing. Everything in his life was determined by this faithfulness that God himself elicited by the promise. We, in our time, live by a faithfulness in the God who justifies the ungodly and who raised Jesus from the dead And by doing that justifies all of humankind. That begins to motivate all the way we think and do and act and decide and deliberate and choose and how we act toward our neighbor and how we act toward our God. So again, Abraham's faithful, this is the point so far in Romans 4, Abraham's faithful trust evoked by God's promise which motivated his entire livingness was approved both when he was in a state of uncircumcision and when he was in the state of circumcision. Therefore, why are you guys fighting about circumcision or uncircumcision in Rome? What God is after is a faith that works by love. If you'll all live in a faith that works by love, You'll have unity and harmony and live in peace with one another. And your unity will be an astounding motivation for missionary success, missionary enterprise. Because after all, Paul wants to come that way, spend some time with them before he goes to Spain. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. I pray that the Holy Spirit will now go to work. I've done my job under your direction. Now may the Holy Spirit do the thing that I can't do, and that is enlighten by this teaching and actually reveal the kind of livingness that God approves. Not only reveal it, but inspire it, instigate it, and sustain it in all of us, Father.